Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week, part two of my interview with me. Actually, I'm not the one doing the interview. Arlen Peters, who has been a guest on this podcast and has also been a longtime celebrity interviewer and correspondent for CBS Radio and a lot of studios. So it's pretty much his job to interview real celebrities, and he's slumming it this week by interviewing me. If you missed part one, go back after you listen to this podcast and listen to last week's, but we continue talking about actors and directing, and we kind of go off on all kinds of tangents. So part two, my interview with me (laughs) on Hollywood and Levine. As a writer, uh, the two of you are sitting in a room and you're writing, you're doing that, but then you also have to interact, obviously, with the actors. So how much influence did the actual actors performing your words have on what you were writing or the stories you were concocting? Well, the actors weren't involved in the stories. The actors usually got the scripts right before the table reading. Unless an actor was uh, a producer or was really involved. Uh, Case in point, when we did the series Almost Perfect with Nancy Travis. And even though she wasn't a producer, as a courtesy, we would sit down with her before the season and kind of just lay out our game plan for how we wanted the season to go, just so that that she was aware. There are some shows where the stars basically control the show. You know, uh, they have to approve the scripts and the outlines and and everything. Um, We, by and large, did not have that problem. And MASH, Allen was terrific. There were were a couple of times when he or some of the other actors would have an issue and we would deal with it. Um, But Allen always was positive. It was always, how can we make this script better? As opposed to, oh, this, this sucks. <clears throat> this, uh, we need a rewrite. This, this is terrible. You know, you go down sometimes and, you know, the script's in bad shape and you walk onto the stage and the cast looks at you like they, you know, like you killed their puppy. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to go, okay, let us see it. We'll go back. We'll fix it. But Alan was very positive. 
as were the the cast members on Cheers. And I think a lot of it has to do with them trusting you. A lot of it has to do with them feeling that they're in good hands. And I've been very lucky. I've worked on top-tier shows where it has been very collaborative. There are some shows where there is the demilitarized zone between the actors and the writers, and they hate each other. That is not the case on the shows that I worked on. And, you know, I'm friends socially with a lot of the actors, and it was very, very collaborative. And I'm thinking also of Frasier, Mm-hmm. which uh, uh, really an offshoot of, of Cheers. And you were really blessed with some really oh. fine performers, wonderful ensembles, oh my which God. makes life easy. I mean, imagine as a writer being able to, number one, have your stuff actually produced. Number two, have it seen by 30 million people a week. And number three having some of the finest actors in America do your material. You know, there's there's Alan Alda and David Hyde Pierce and Ted Danson and Shelley Long and Nancy Travis and, you know, on and on. Kelsey Grammer, uh, Rhea Perlman, Harry Morgan. It, it was just phenomenal that we had a chance to write for these people. And it's even more phenomenal that... Those shows, many of them at least, are still being seen today. You know, when we wrote MASH, we never thought that 40 years from now there's going to be a TV land channel and the shows are still going to air. Uh, so that's that's really nice that the stuff is still being seen. So you're hitting home runs. You are a, a highly respected writer. You and David are just, I mean, hundreds of episodes here. At what point do you decide, I think I want to direct some of these? Well, I'm always looking to reinvent myself to try to find new things to do. I would go down to run-throughs, and there was a period of time when I was a creative consultant on shows. And what that meant was one night a week, I would go, say, to Wings, and I would go to the run-through at four in the afternoon, and then I would go back to the writer's room, and I would help them rewrite. I was kind of fresh eyes and a new voice and adding energy and pitching jokes. I'm pretty good at pitching jokes in a room. And I did that for a number of years for a lot of shows. Back in those days, they were paying big money for that. And I wasn't about to leave the money on the table. So I would do sometimes four series a week. Those were four long nights. And it kind of took its toll. And it got to the point where I would go down to the stage for a run-through. And I would dread (laughs) going to the stage. Because it just meant, oh, my God, if the B scene doesn't work, that's 2 in the morning. Oh, God, this blowout didn't work. Okay, that's now 3.30 in the morning. Okay, now we're here till 4. And so I dreaded going down to the stage. And I thought to myself, you know, there's something wrong if you're a TV writer and you're dreading 
going down to the stage. The stage is where you should be having fun. And so I thought, well, directors are having fun. Directors are down there with the actors having fun. And if the script turns out to be problematic and the writers are there at 2 o'clock in the morning, you still can make dinner reservations. (laughs) Okay, you don't have to be there. So uh, for that reason and also because as a showrunner, I had seen bad directing and I had gone into the editing room and asked for a, a two-shot. And they go, he didn't get you a two-shot. It's like, how can you not have a two-shot here? Or somebody would make a joke about somebody's costume. and say, okay, let's go to the, uh, the wide shot where you see the co- Well, there's no shot of the costume. Well, <laughs> how, can you, how can you have a costume joke and not put a camera on it? So for all of those reasons, I decided to try my hand at directing. Uh, For writing, you have to do your spec scripts. How do you do spec directing? You don't. (laughs) You don't. I spent a couple of years auditing. I watched Jim Burroughs. I watched Andy Ackerman. I watched uh, Jeff Melman. I watched a a number of, of good directors, Philip Charles McKenzie, And then I would go home and try to figure out the camera blocking. Then I would go back the next day and I would watch their camera blocking and I would try to see the patterns, that type of thing. And I asked Jim Burroughs at one point, I said, well, what is the best advice you could give for learning how to direct? And his answer was get the job. Get the job. So how do you get the job? Well, in my case, I was very lucky. I had been a consultant with Wings for many years and had written episodes of Wings. And so I asked Peter Casey, David Lee, and David Angel if I could direct one. And they said, okay. And it That's simple. Yeah. And it helped that, number one, they knew I had been preparing for this for a couple of years. And number two, the cast all knew me. The cast and the crew all knew me. So I'm not just a substitute teacher being thrown into an inner city classroom, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And it was very tough. The camera blocking took forever, and it was a particularly difficult episode, which, looking back, was a blessing. Because the fact that I got through it I figured if I can get through this, I can get through anything. You know, if it was easy, then I think, oh, okay, this directing stuff is a breeze. And then, you know, my third assignment, uh, I'd be walking into a propeller. So this way, at least uh, I knew kind of what the worst case scenario would be like. And I was able to rise above it and, you know, and then move forward. There are people who will say directing a a TV episode is a piece of cake. It's like stealing money. You've got four cameras. The cameras are isolated. You have all these shots. Everything is covered. Give it to the editor, and here's your show. It's absolutely the opposite because you have four cameras. Do the math. You have six characters in a scene. 
They're all moving around the stage. You have four cameras. You have to cover six people with four cameras. You also have to have cameras on people who aren't talking for reaction shots. You also have to have wide shots so that the audience knows the geography as to where everybody is. You also have to have cameras set for entrances. You also have to prepare that there may be, if the show is long, uh, some lines that are going to be cut. And you have to be able to cover the show in such a way where it's easy to just lift those lines. And you have to do it on the fly. You have 200 people in the audience and your cameras are moving all at once as the action is going along. Okay? Try that. Some flop, some <laughs> try, flop try sweat. That. Some flop sweat going on, huh? You know, talking to uh, single camera directors, you know, directors who direct movies or single camera shows, where it's basically, it's one camera. It's one camera, and you shoot Hawkeye, and then you move the camera around to the other side, and then you shoot BJ, and then you move the camera around, and, and it shoots both of them. So if you have four people in a scene, there may be six setups, and you have to do the scene over and over and over again. Here, you don't have that. So single camera directors have said, I can take a multi-camera director... And I could teach him how to do single camera in 15 minutes. Mm. A single camera director learning multi-camera, months. I have asked single camera film directors this question. Your very first directorial assignment, you walk out on the stage or the location or whatever, what are your feelings? And uh, so many of them said to me, you, you go out there, you look around, and there are hundreds of eyes staring at you, thinking, yep. okay, I'm ready, what are we going to do now? Uh, what was that very first shoot day for you as a director? What was it like? Oh, my first shoot day was panic. My first shoot day was panic because all of the above, and we had had a dress rehearsal that afternoon, and sometimes after a dress rehearsal, the writers will change a couple of lines, that sort of thing. And you have some new lines to work in. They put in a new scene. And I'm reading this new scene. It's now 6.30. The show's going to start filming at 7. And the audience is filing in. <laughs> okay? I can't rehearse the scene on the stage. I can't give the camera guys their assignments. I go back to the actors and I say, okay, you come in here and you'll come in here and then you'll kind of walk around there and da, 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 da. Okay. And I went to the camera guys and I said, uh, you pick up him, you pick up her, you try to get a master. They may come around here, just get whatever you want to get. After the audience leaves, I will block it and then then we will shoot it. And we're only going to shoot it once for the audience. So he said, okay. And, um, and this is a funny story. So now we're shooting the show and we get to that scene. And I'm sitting off to the side with 
what we call the quad split, which is four monitors. Each monitor shows what the cameras are seeing. So we get to that scene, and I say, okay, cameras ready, action, go. So the scene goes, and the cameras are out of focus, fishing, just getting a shot of someone's nose. People are walking out of frame. It's just uh, utter chaos. And when it was over, and I had told the showrunners, I had told Peter, David, and David, eh, I'm just going to do this for the audience, and then we'll go back, and we'll get, get this for you. It says, great. So then when it was over, I said, okay, cut, great. I got what I needed moving on. And the NBC executive who was watching this was like, whoa, 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 what do you mean you got this? What? And, and I said, look, I'm trying something stylistic here, okay? And when it's all put together, it's going to be really cool. And the showrunners knew that I was goofing with them, and he, he goes to them and like, what? And they were going, oh, no, 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 that's, no, that's Ken's vision. We're going to let him do it. And he was just petrified that that was <laughs> going to be on the air. Needless to say, not a single frame of what was filmed in front of the audience actually made it to air. And I bet you never did that again. No, I never did. I, I've never had a, a scene thrown at me 15 minutes before we're actually going to film. All right. Now, you don't have to name names, but in any kind of a creative situation you have we've talked about it superb actors but occasionally there's a ringer occasionally there's a problem with uh, an actor and something's embarrassing and it's they're difficult to work with what was your what was the bottom of the barrel for you um yeah i had a couple to me the problem with actors is when their issues are not about the script, not about the work. It's about their ego. And it's about, well, I don't like this scene, not because the scene doesn't work, but because she doesn't think that the actor who's going to play her boyfriend in this scene is handsome enough and it's going to make her look bad. That kind of stuff. Um, that's, that's really hard to deal with. Because you can't come right out to the actress and go, come on, this is bullshit. I know what this is about. You know, so you have to talk in terms of the script as well and try to justify it. And it's just, like I said, all total bullshit. Um, I've been very lucky, by and large, with actors. Um, there are some that are more high-maintenance than others. But if it's about the work, then that's my job. So I, I don't really mind that. You know, a lot has been said about Shelley Long and the rumors of how difficult she was. Shelley had, I thought, the trickiest character to play in any situation comedy. To make Diane lovable and vulnerable and still be true to her being condescending and being snooty 
It's a very fine line, and it would be so easy to hate her. So easy to hate Diane Chambers. And Shelley walked that line so well, but it took a lot of effort and a lot of work on her part and a lot of analysis and and a lot of time. But look at the results. I mean, Shelley Long, the first year of Cheers, I think is the greatest single performance of any sitcom actor other than, you know, uh, Lucy or, you know, Jackie Gleason. I'm using the, the, the modern era, 1960 on. I think that was the greatest single performance of any comic actress. Do actors basically direct themselves, especially in a long-running series? Yes. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, they're learning their character initially in the first oh, yeah. series. Then afterwards, they've got it. I mean, you're five years in. They, they know that character. Yep, yep. I mean, they want you as a director to be prepared, so I always know where I want them to start and how I want the scene to go, but I do kind of leave it to them to sort of walk around and and find their positions, and I always say to actors, look, I'm here as your safety net. If you want to try something, feel free to try it. As long as I could go, mm, I think it was better this way. Um, and I'm always happy to do that. I'm always happy to let actors try things. The other thing that I think helps me as a director is the fact that I was also a writer. And um, there would be scenes that actors would be struggling with. And I would be able to say, the problem is you don't have enough to go on here. You know, they they want you to make this leap from zero to 60. And you need some more intervals along the way before you can get that mad. So I'd say, that's a writing problem. We'll address that tonight. Don't kill yourself over that particular moment there's also the thing as as a writer and tell me if i'm wrong but as a writer when you're writing a scene in your head you're kind of blocking that scene aren't you oh yeah so that 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 makes it easier as a director when you're doing that show or that script that you've written when i write a script a tv script people say so what do you picture i picture it on the air that way, it's not Ted Danson, it's Sam Malone. And it's Diane Chambers, it's not Shelley Long. Some writers will picture show night with the cameras and everything else. I don't. I picture how it will look in my head on the air. And it was interesting, a few years ago, when I did an experiment for my blog, where I wrote a spec Dick Van Dyke show, And as I'm writing the show, I'm picturing it in black and white. (laughs) I've never written a script that I pictured in black and white. But that's all I knew of the Dick Van Dyke show. And the other thing is, when you're writing the words, you're hearing the actors talk to you, aren't you? Yes. You're hearing their voice. Yes. Their inflection, their attitude. You're hearing it. And that's why when David and I write a pilot and these are brand new characters, we always set up prototypes. Now, we're not going to get 
George Clooney to play this part. And we're not going to get Elizabeth Banks to play that part. But for our purposes in writing, we'll both picture George Clooney so we both hear the same voice. You mention a word that is, I consider it rather prevalent, I think, in your life, which is reinvent. You mentioned how you reinvent. Okay. So now, here you are again, very successful in the television area, movies. What was that all about? Did you think you were going to reinvent? And like a lot of other people say, all right, I've done television. Now I'm a film person. Well, we wanted to do both. We wanted to get into movies because that was always our first, uh, you know, goal to get into features. We thought, okay, now we're on MASH, so our agent will just call film studios and producers and (laughs) they'll get us assignments. And it was like, no, that's television. The agent would say, yeah, but it's MASH, okay, which is very much like a movie and combines comedy and drama you know, it's not F Troop. It's it's Mash, <laughs> and they still at the time there was this big divide between TV writers and screenwriters, and they looked down at TV writers. So we had to write a spec screenplay, and at the time we were afraid that they're going to look at our spec screenplay and just go, "Oh, sitcom, sitcom writers." So we said, let's write something that is very different and edgy. So what we did was wrote a screenplay, which was basically a comedy fictional look at the Kent State Massacre. (laughs) That, That was our comedy. All right. Where a kid who was in college was also in the National Guard to avoid being drafted, and he gets called up. And so now he's standing there with a rifle looking across at all of his school friends. No one, no one dies, and we didn't, do, we didn't do that. But it was a very dark comedy, and it got us uh, a lot of attention. It did its job, and the producer... Uh, Walter Parks read it and had this basic idea of a preppy asshole who, to avoid a gambling debt, takes his partner's place on the Peace Corps charter and winds up in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And so we got the volunteers assignment. And this was your this was your first screenplay. Yes, our first actual paid screenplay. Yes. Wow, mm-hmm. so you were one for one. We were one for one, but it took five years. And it went through three studios and turnaround and three directors and, you know, the usual <laughs> how many rewrites? development hell. How many rewrites oh, on that God. by how uh, many writers? I can't, I can't tell you. There were two other writers brought in. Both were discarded. They ultimately went back to us. And what you see on the screen is... 99% us. But, uh, yeah, just endless rewrites, endless numbers of drafts. 
And when uh, finally uh, Tom Hanks was is cast in that, right? What went through your mind when you were writing it? Were you thinking of a specific actor? When we wrote it originally, we were thinking Bill Murray, hmm. but Bill Murray was kind of getting too old to play that part. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to the producer, "Well, you know, there's this guy on this TV show, Bosom Buddies, mm. named Tom Hanks, who I think could do this." But at the time, of course, Tom Hanks couldn't open a movie. So that kind of went nowhere. But our initial inspiration was Bill Murray. Mm. So what you're telling me here is that you, Ken Levine, are responsible for Tom Hanks' massive movie career and his life because he met his wife on that That's right. Movie. That's right. I take full credit for the second, not the first. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, he had, done, he had done Splash before, which made him sort of a big comedy flavor of the month. Yeah. Okay. But I do take credit for the second thing, that uh, okay. he and Rita got together as a result of our movie. Now, you go to see the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm, what's your thought? Um... Oh, were you, let me back up. Were you on the set at all? Were you no, guys we on weren't the on the set. They filmed it down in Mexico, and we were rewriting Jewel of the Nile for Michael Douglas at the time. We did see dailies, and I would say, you know, there there were things in there that I thought the director missed. There were other things in there that I thought he did extremely well. Um I I think it could use an edit, <laughs> but I'll tell you, I hadn't seen it in years. Because why? <laughs> why watch this again? And it shows up all the time still uh, on HBO and various. Do the checks come in um, now? Very small, <laughs> but now um, after we got on the guild to give us those checks, yes, but. There's one night, I had nothing to do, I was looking through my DVDs, and I thought, you know, I don't think I've seen this movie in 10 years. I'll, I'll put it on and watch it, and if at any point I get bored, I'll just turn it off. It's not like I don't know the ending. So I put it on, and I watched it the whole way through, and I like it better now than I did originally, I look at it now and I go, wow, there's a lot of really funny, smart stuff and there's a story and it it builds and it has nice twists and great performances by Tom Hanks and John Candy. And mm. uh, I, I, I was pleasantly surprised because I thought, oh, God, I'm going to watch 15 minutes of this and then just turn it off and never watch it again ever. But... Yeah, I like, so go see volunteers. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned Jewel and Isle. That was an unbilled rewrite, you did? Yes, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There is a level of rewriting that goes on where you're uncredited because you generally don't do enough, but... You're well compensated. Script doctoring. Yeah. You're you're well compensated. So 
We did that on a number of scripts, like Mannequin or whatever. I mean, they'll pay you stupid money for three weeks' work. And it's great to be on that list of writers that they would go to. And we did rewrites on movies that got made. We did rewrites on movies that ultimately didn't get made. But, yeah, you sacrifice credit for the money. But we're whores, so... (laughs) But you also learn from everyone, and you mentioned Michael Douglas, Mm -hmm. who... Certainly, he's been on a long time. Yeah, and is very well respected. It was cool. I got to work with Michael Douglas. And yeah. and uh, what did you learn from Michael? You know, I learned good producing from Michael. I learned that Michael would do whatever it took to move things forward, and he did it in a very gentlemanly way, but. He definitely made decisions. He definitely was in control. And I saw that both on and off the set. Because like he said, on the set you have to take responsibility as a star. The star sets the tone on the set. And if the star is a giant asshole, then it's going to be... Just a a horrible, tension-filled set. And if the star is very positive and working towards everybody rowing in the same direction and doing a great job, it's going to be a happy set. And I learned a lot of that from, from Michael. Again, were you on the set at all? Were you writing no, on the no, set? No, we were invited and we were doing a pilot for Mary Tyler Moore at the time. Yeah. And Danny DeVito said, oh, God, you dodged a bullet. It was so hot and miserable in Morocco and living in these tents and oh, the wind and a thousand degrees. You guys dodged a bullet. So, yeah, we did not go on the set for that. Overall, how different do you think the movie experience you had was from the lengthy TV experience. You have so much more power in television. As a showrunner, the writers are the ones that are the creative force of the show. Movies, the writer is like one notch below craft services. Okay, It's the director who is the creative force and the producer, and the stars. And at will, they can hire another writer to change your stuff. At will, they can say, you're not welcome on the set. At will, they can do that. But television, no. Television, you're the showrunner. You're the one making the decisions. The other thing I love about television, as opposed to features is that you can serve it when it's hot okay you write a show this week and next week it goes into production you write a screenplay and years can go by yeah. they're trying to get the financing mm-hmm. they're trying to get uh, emma watson but she's not available and so they can do it in the fall and then she drops out and now you're looking at somebody else and you know, these things can drag on and on. Television, you have to meet air dates. So 
you you film something next Friday night. Cameras will roll. Another reinvention for you. Okay. Um, TV, movies in the background, playwriting now. Playwriting. Um, I always love writing dialogue, and I felt that television. The type of things that I like to write on television are not the type of things that they're doing so much. And by that, I mean sophisticated shows. When they were filming our last Frasier episode, which was like the second or third to the end, David and I were standing on the stage. It was playing very well to the audience. And I turned to David and I said, is this the last multi-camera, sophisticated comedy you and I will ever write. And unfortunately, so far, the answer is yes. But for the theater, I can write anything. I can write for older audiences. I'm not slavishly trying to get millennials to watch the show. And the playwright is king in that world. I mean, actors can't change a word. I have the ability at any time to just pull the play. If I go in and I see the director has just done a horrible job and is just killing my play, you know, movies, it's like I, I'm stuck with it. But play, I can just say, uh, no, I'm, I'm pulling it. I'm pulling it. I notice you're still, even with the playwriting, keeping a little bit of your TV roots in this because I see where you have done some writing festivals now where literally you have to write the, the, the play and they perform the play the same day or you just have a few hours yes, to write yes. it. There, you see, you, you can't get away from those TV roots. You know, I've always said, and, you know, we have to wrap it up here pretty soon. Uh, God, I'm verbose. But I've always said that one of the key factors of being a television writer is not talent. It's not luck. It's the ability to create on demand. It's the ability to go in there every day, even though you've got a cold, even though you've had a fight with your wife, even though you're battling some insurance company. You have to put all of that aside and do your best work day after day after day. And that's craft, and that's professionalism, and that's what that teaches you. So when I have to sit down and write a 10-minute play in three hours, yes, that's less time than I would normally take. If I have an idea for a 10-minute play, it'll take me all day to write it. But I can write it in three hours. You know, you just you lock yourself into that mode that, okay, it's rewrite night and it's one o'clock in the morning and I don't go home until this is done. So roll up the sleeves and do it. I can go on. We can talk about the reinvention of Ken Levine as a baseball announcer. Well, we'll, but do, we'll do this again. We'll do this yeah. again. But I just tell you this. You are not verbose. There's verbose dull and there's re- verbose quite interesting you fall into the latter category well thank you arlen and and thank you for those those questions i thought you were going to make me cry 
Maybe no. next time. No, no, yeah. no, no. I, uh, if you laugh, talk, if you laugh. Would, if you would have talked about Aftermash a lot, that that would have made me. Cry. I knew that's why I didn't talk. <laughs> Thank you so much. My pleasure. Okay, and you have like a website or something because Arlen is also a uh, a great speaker. So uh, talk. You a can bit. well plug, plug your. Well, thank you very much. I I do a a talk called Confessions of a Celebrity Interviewer, and you've heard a lot of my bits and pieces and stories on on earlier uh, uh, podcasts uh, with Ken. And uh, if you want to reach me and if uh, you have a group that is a paying group, uh, ArlenP at Roadrunner.com is the best place to reach me, and we can talk. Okay. Thank you, and that is going to do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks to Arlen Peters, also to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wilford, Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, I will answer you back. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram, who isn't Hollywood and Levine. And uh, what else? Uh, Subscribe if you haven't subscribed already, and I could use a five-star review. Okay, all of that out of the way. Again, thanks to Arlen Peters. Now you know more about me than you, you ever cared to know. And I'll talk to you next week, and we'll talk about other people. Hollywood and the Vine.